Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 255th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters podcast network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5. I'm the host of Awards Chatter, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by the HBO limited series Sharp Objects. For your Golden Globes consideration in the nominated categories of Best Limited Series or TV Movie, Best Actress in a Miniseries or TV Movie, Amy Adams, and Best Supporting Actress in a Series, Miniseries, or TV Movie, Patricia Clarkson. The New York Times has called this summer smash hit a mesmerizing, meticulously constructed, and transfixing thriller. Sharp Objects. Check it out. My guest today is one of the most popular guys in Hollywood an actor who made his name playing sales associate Jim Halpert on the NBC comedy series The Office from 2005 through 2013, transitioned into movies like 2009's Away We Go and 2012's Promised Land, then got ripped for 2016's 13 Hours, and in recent years became a full-fledged movie star and director, most recently and most notably of one of the most commercially successful and critically acclaimed films of 2018 the elevated horror flick, A Quiet Place, John Krasinski. Krasinski previously directed several episodes of The Office and two films that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, 2009's Brief Interviews with Hideous Men and 2016's The Hollers, but nothing suggested what he had in store with A Quiet Place, a film about a man, played by Krasinski himself, who tries to protect his family from threatening creatures who are blind, but therefore have heightened hearing and react violently to any sound. The bold, almost dialogue-free film, which co-stars Krasinski's wife, Emily Blunt, opened in April and grossed $50 million in its first weekend, double most projections, to top the box office. A week later, it was number two, before roaring back a week after that to reach number one again. It ultimately grossed $188 million domestically and an additional $153 million abroad, or $341 million cumulatively, just massive at a time when Paramount really needed a hit while maintaining a 95% favorable rating on RottenTomatoes.com. It has been chosen as one of 2018's top 10 films by the American Film Institute and the National Board of Review. It was recognized with the Hollywood Sound Award at the Hollywood Film Awards, and Marco Beltrami's original score has been nominated for a Golden Globe Award. Krasinski, meanwhile, was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World for 2018. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 39-year-old and I discussed all of the above, plus much more, from his failed audition for Captain America the First Avenger to his SAG Award-nominated portrayal of the title character on Amazon Prime's Jack Ryan. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. John, thanks so much for doing this, and congratulations. We're taping this just, like, Few hours after the SAG nominations, big, yeah, big day for your family. It is a, it's a, it's a big day in our house. It's uh, really, really exciting. But thank you for doing this. This, oh, is, this is fantastic. On this podcast, we always go, you know, right back to the beginning. So to begin with, just where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Amazing. We're going, <laughs> we're going way back. I was born just outside of Boston in Newton, Mass. And my dad was a doctor. He retired a little while ago. My mom was a nurse. She retired a little while ago. So. I was immediately the black sheep by being like, hey, I'll be an actor. That's what I'll do. Well, from what I was able to read, you know, looking back, it seems like you were not a theater kid, you know, growing up. But there was a one crazy thing that and I don't know if this was the first acting experience, but in high school, 
a classmate, none other than B.J. Novak, yeah, that's put exactly you in a right. show? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, you're brushing right past my sixth grade daddy Warbucks, <laughs> which uh, to this day, I don't think I did a better performance. I was in high school and went to high school with B.J., knew B.J. well, and he was bringing back this thing called The Senior Show, which was a giant parody on the school, which understandably the teachers weren't thrilled by. And it hadn't happened in five years because of the teachers weren't thrilled by it. And he said, well, I'm going to bring it back and I want you to play one of the leads. And I thought, that's a silly decision that you just made. And he's like, no, I think you'd be great. And so it was. It was one of my first, you know, real committed acting experiences. And it was a blast. It was a total blast. And I still to this day don't understand what it was that he saw that thought <laughs> I could do that. And yet you had a great time. But when you finished high school in 97, I guess it was, what did you imagine your future was going to entail? It was not acting. No, it was English teacher. Yeah. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be an English teacher I can't lie and say it wasn't completely 100% due to Dead Poets Society. Yeah. I mean, I saw Dead Poets Society <laughs> and thought, yes, I will stand on desks, ladies and gentlemen. And so I got into Brown University, but mm -hmm. got in mid-year. So I went down to Costa Rica and taught English down there as a 17-year-old for about six months, which was life-changing. I think the most important thing I learned was self-reliance. But that was also the English teaching thing. Yeah. And so when I got to Brown, I just wanted to be an English major and write a little bit and probably go to some beautiful romantic prep school where <laughs> I could hide in caves and read poetry right. with kids, yeah. Well, the way it was described in one thing, this might be, you know, apocryphal or the way people consolidate stories, but supposedly on the day that you were going to explore what you wanted to do, which sounded like well, one of the things would have been basketball, yes. big guy, that same day when that illusion was kind of shattered was the day that something else entered the picture? Is that It's very that? true. God, you're, you did your research. I love this. Yeah, what happened was, listen, I was I was not necessarily recruited. I was recruited by a, a few schools to play basketball, but really more just letters of, if you ever get here, right. come meet us and <laughs> see if we can walk on. And my brother at the time at Brown University was the captain of the team. And so I went in to see the coach who had said, when you come in, let me know. Obviously, it was mid-season, so I couldn't have joined there. But I went to meet the coach. And it's not an exaggeration that I opened the door to the gym, and by the time it hit its full extension and was swinging back, I decided no. I had seen, happen. yeah, <laughs> I saw about 3.7 seconds of all these guys working way too hard and getting up way too early to do weight training and stuff, and I just thought, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and was walking back through campus that day, and I always remember this because it was Brown, which is a very liberal mm -hmm. school, and there was a a notice or a flyer for a sketch comedy group called Out of Bounds, but it was nailed to a tree. And I remember thinking that was so ironic, like, come on, guys, we don't this nail things to trees. Come on now. <laughs> and I decided, you know what? I, I was a huge fan of Saturday Night Live. Truth be told, I wasn't joining to be an actor. I was mm -hmm. joining to be a part of a community. Yeah. I think I was, you know, it was early days, my first few days as a, a student, and I was looking for a group of people. And the few people I had met in that group, from the kids who wrote, directed, lit sets, painted sets, like it was just such a fun I always call it like a circus life, and I just I wanted to join it. So I auditioned for the group and got in, and everything changed from there. From an internal perspective, I just felt like my real education at Brown University, as amazing as the education mm -hmm. is, of course, my real education was getting to know these people. And I've told this story before, but it's true. I remember saying to these people in the acting community or the theater community, I said, I just knew that they were much smarter than me and much, much more worldly than I was. And I was probably a kid who hadn't seen any movie that wasn't in the Cineplex and hadn't heard any song that wasn't on the radio. And so I said, can you give me an album and a movie 
every week. Wow. And for four years, they did. There were like seven or eight guys who, who gave me an album and a movie every single week. And that was the first time I experienced indie film, French New Wave film, 70s classics, like yeah. really a deep dive. So my brain was expanded, no drugs necessary. I was in a whole time warp of a whole changing moment. It was, it was really amazing. Wow. Well, you and your wife have something in common, or let me set this up differently. You and your we wife- have nothing in common. Yeah. Come on, Scott, you know that. <laughs> you and your wife both have a connection to Lin-Manuel Miranda. She's worked with him. You were, Around. like him, directed <laughs> by Chris Hayes. That's right. right. So he, I guess it was in high school, you go to Brown and- have this interaction with Chris Hayes, which was more the the introduction of acting as opposed to sketch. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So again, I, I went from the sketch group and was just doing anything I could in, in the theater and basically was armed guard number four a lot. And it was Chris Hayes who came up to me. And at the time, I remember thinking he was such a huge deal. He was so smart. He had directed a bunch of plays at the school and he was going to do something he said very cutting edge and something he's wanted to do forever. It was a book by David Foster Wallace called Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. And he said, I'm going to do a stage reading. And I remember genuinely feeling overwhelmed and nervous that he chose me because all the other people in it were, you know, the highest echelon of actors in the, in the group. And again, I had just joined for friends, so I didn't think I was good at anything. And it was that moment without, you know, going too far with it. It's true that that was the moment I realized that acting was so much more than just performing because in sketch comedy it was just for laughs and trying to make people laugh and be happy and and then all of a sudden that material was so deep so dark and and so mind expanding of conversations and i think it was really big for me to see how people reacted to that show we only did it for two nights and it was one of the most amazing experiences for me and that piece of material will re-enter this in a little bit but i guess First, there was you were doing some professional work while you were still in college, and thank I, you for calling it professional yeah, well, work. I mean, yeah, you're getting paid, right? It uh, was well, true. Yeah, uh, I was a featured extra and some stuff, and <laughs> it was great. You know, I'll I'll leave it to you to share any of those that you want, but also I think in in 2000, still pre graduation, you wind up interning for Conan. Was that out here? No, that was in New York. In New York, yeah. So that was back at the 12:30 slot, and it was to me, it was all about taking on anything I could to experience this world. Because again, it was so foreign to me. I yeah. I think the whole showbiz thing was so crazy that I was happy to be an extra in movies or, or do whatever. So I was driving back and forth to Boston for some work there. Very ironically, my first job ever was a Marshalls commercial with a woman named Margot Martindale, <laughs> right. who later played my mom in the hollers and was right. so amazing to partner up with me on that. And Conan was one of those things where very simply, I watched them every single night. There was something where I think what a lot of people feel about Carson, mm -hmm. I had with Conan. So there was a awakening in me that I saw how funny he could be, how self-deprecating he could be, all while being so unbelievably yeah. smart. Yeah. And there was something different about it. And to this day, I don't think that there's someone who's influenced my level of comedy or my brand or, or, or got me excited about comedy like Conan. Wow. So I just applied to be an intern. And then when I got there, they got I got the internship, which was great. And then they sort of gave me the specialty internship job of being script intern. So instead of just running around getting coffee for people, which I would have loved, mm -hmm. after 2 p.m. you went down to rehearsals, which I think none of the other interns get to do. So I got to see all the rehearsals. I was making not changes to scripts, but every time they made a change to a script, I would go hand out the different yeah. colored pages. And so I actually got to interface with Conan a whole lot. I'll never forget at the end of the summer, 
all the interns were going out to have a drink to celebrate mm -hmm. and Conan called me into his room and thank God offered me a Sam Adams and he's like you're from Boston you have to drink a Sam right. Adams I said correct and he I'll never forget he said thank you so much for laughing every night because my job was to go over after all the producers and hair and makeup and everybody swarms him they all disperse for about 17 seconds and the drums are rolling and Max was playing and for 17 seconds he would blow through all his jokes in the monologue just one more time right. so they had the wording and I would cry laughing and <laughs> and he thought it was completely just to support him and I told him no I think you're one of the funniest people ever so that was my first relationship with him and since then have become friendly with him which is still mind-blowing so nice yeah so one of the byproducts of being a mid-year I know because I was also one is that so you started later than a lot of your class that was the Costa Rica thing right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you also have to make up the credits on the other point. end yeah right exactly so in your case that meant going where to the National Theater Institute in Waterford Connecticut which I have to be really honest with you it was out of sheer laziness it was something that was really exciting to me I thought it would be really exciting to go but I totally did it as a college kid who all his friends had left campus and I didn't want to be alone on right. campus and I thought I got to look for a program that will transfer credits back and here's this awesome school great I'll do that and instead, I went there to take the easy life and instead got a huge dose of reality because it was all about training you not only to do the things you love, but how much it costs to do what you're doing. So we were up at five in the morning every day and we went to bed probably at two in the morning every night wow. because we were, again, we were writing, directing, lighting sets, painting sets. It was a full on do it yourself kind of experience. And it was a game change for me in every single way. It, it, it is the moment that I decided I wanted to be an actor. And I didn't do it because nothing in there is about being a successful actor. Everything about there is do you love it? And I'll never forget that. I, and it's sort of the only advice I can give to people because when people come up to me and say, you know, my daughter wants to be an actress or my son wants to be an actor, what, what do you advise? I say, well, listen, I won a lottery ticket. I can't tell you how to play the lottery. But what I can tell you is every day just ask yourself do you love it and do you love it enough that you can't do anything else and if the answer is yes get up and do it again and if the answer is no step away because you know it, it's it's definitely a challenging life for sure to get there well so you had to have a conversation with your parents about whether this is the right move and i mean you graduate from an ivy league school with honors yeah they probably had other things in mind for your future right yeah no i think they were really prepared for me to say i want to be a professional waiter um <laughs> <laughs> so we were driving out of that school and my mom was in the car and i said to her i remember we we were just leaving the parking lot and i said listen i'm going to move to new york and i'm going to give it a shot and she didn't hesitate which i'll never forget that you know it's almost the things you don't say versus the things you say and then she said something so beautiful which was if in two and a half or three years you don't have a bite or a nibble, we used to fish as kids. So yeah. she said, if you don't have a bite or a nibble, you know, you have to just promise me one thing, which is after that time, you have to call me and pull yourself out of this game because you can never ask your mother to tell her son to give up on her dreams. And I thought that was so profound, so inspiring and so exciting to me. And then <laughs> sure enough, two and a half years later, I called her and I said, you were right. I gave it a shot, did it all. You know, I'd done so many fun things and off, 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 off Broadway stuff, but it was really hard. I could barely pay my rent or my cell phone. I was deciding between keeping the lights on or keeping my cell phone, and, and I had had enough with that. And uh, Before you do the payoff, can we just note, because I think a lot of actors are in that moment still that may, may be listening. Mm -hmm. So you were doing the things that a lot of New York actors of that time were doing, like uh, one-offs of Law & Order, Criminal Intent, right? Yep. Without Trace, CSI. You had some parts in movies right yes. we and these were you know notable movies Kinsey taxi with 
Jimmy yeah, Fallon, right? That's right. Um, and some others. But this period's coming to an end. And before, again, before the payoff with what you talked about with your mom, had there also been something with your dad during that period where it's like you're almost feeling guilty about what you're doing? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know how you know that story. I'm looking in your eyes. The listeners can't see, but he's got the twinkle in his eye. I'm like, wow, did you talk to my dad? Um, no, I remember actually coming to this moment where, you know, if I'm really honest, there were there were days where you get anxious. You you get anxious about there's a romance to being in your early 20s, that sort of invincibility cloak that you think you have on and you may very well have it on. But after a while, you know, bits of reality crack in. And after a while, you just start thinking to yourself, is this what I want to do? And it was really difficult. And I said to my dad, I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I feel I feel bad. And he said, about what? And we were on the beach looking out at the ocean. It was it was such a hallmark moment. I, I kind of can't even believe it happened. But my dad is the most wonderful, amazing human being. And he was looking out at the ocean. He said, why do you feel bad? I said, well, because I'm the black sheep of your family. You know, my oldest brother went on to be an orthopedic surgeon. My middle brother created his own business. And here I was pretending to be an actor. Or so I thought. And he said, well, I must have done something right as your father to, you know, have a son who looks at a road that's littered with nose and still decides to walk down it. And I burst into tears. Again, it doesn't take much for me to cry, but I was I burst into tears. It was the most amazingly sort of supportive, fulfilling thing for me. And that's when I went back and, and kept doing it. And by the way, uh, the side note of this is those three years, yeah, they were hard and you're deciding about, you know, how to put two, you know, nickels together to pay your rent. But at the same time, I also remember, not to sound like I'm 94, but <laughs> it was also the best days of my life. I mean, to know where every single bar was that had dollar beer night because you couldn't <laughs> afford anything else and to roll with a, a band of a motley crew of people who were in the same situation. There was nothing more exciting, and there's something very romantic to know that your heroes did that too, whether they're, you know, I'm a big nerd for going to all the places that my heroes have haunted, yeah. and, and, and I just love that life of scrapping it together and fighting for it. But at some point, I came to the realization that, you know, the music had to stop at some point, and, and I had to be an adult, that sort of Peter Pan moment of do I grow up. And so I called my mom, and I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I got to pull myself out. I think it was like three years later, and she said, oh, it's September you know, just wait till Christmas and we'll talk about it over the holidays. Three years after you'd have had that original exactly, conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the timeline that she had given me yeah. was here. And I said, you were right. And, and I gave it, I don't feel bad. I gave it my, my all and I had a lot of fun, but it's time to call it quits. And she said, we'll talk about it over the holidays. Just finish it out. Right. And three weeks later, I got the office. And so <laughs> had she said, and I was ready to get on a train. I was ready to get on the old Acela right, right up away, to Boston. Yeah. And, and that was it. It changed my life. So so that she would gets have been ten percent of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like what two thousand four, just about. Yeah, somewhere? it was two thousand three. That's right. Two thousand three. Yeah. So you at that time, unlike Carell, when he heard about the office, and we had him on a few weeks ago with in connection with Beautiful Boy. So right. we were talking about this. He had not seen the British version. He, in that way, did not know how high the bar was. You did, from what I understand. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And so, can you just connect the dots from? them calling you in and why that might have been mm -hmm. to actually landing the part wherein I think it came up that you were familiar with the prior version. Yeah, exactly. Well, what happened was a bunch of things happened. I remember friends of mine, you know, again, one of the benefits of rolling in that motley crew of people who have their finger on the pulse is the second something cool comes out, you know about it. So the second like the Strokes album dropped, right. you know, I knew about it and felt like I was the first person to hear the album the first time The Office came out. 
I remember I was such a super fan that I, I paid the extra money for any office super fan. They'll know there was like a white DVD box and a black DVD <laughs> box and the black one had like special features and I went crazy on that. <laughs> so when they called me in for that, one of the weirdest things was, and I'm not really sure how I was possessed to think this, but my manager called at the time and said, they want to bring you in for the show, The Office. And I had met Allison Jones, the casting director, in a general meeting. And she said, this is coming up. Get ready. And I said, great, which was amazing. And then they said, they want to bring you in for Dwight. And I said, <laughs> I, I really don't know how I did this. But I, I said, I don't think that's possible. Like, I can't do that role. I'm not the guy. I've always had this sort of realist factor to me, which has been, I don't know where it comes from, but I'm very lucky to have it. The only problem there is... <laughs> The casting director basically called my manager back and was like, sorry, is he dictating to us what's <laughs> happening? And I, I, I said, yeah, this is if I want to do it, I want to put my best foot forward. When they're ready for Jim, let me know. And basically NBC at the time said, good luck, have yeah. a great life. Yeah. And then three or four weeks later, they called back and said, we haven't quite found Jim. And I went in and did the first audition. And I think like a week later, the producers flew in New York to meet the New York group of people. And so I was in sitting in this weird waiting room with six other gyms i was number seven and we all looked exactly alike it was very bizarre <laughs> it was like that seinfeld episode of bizarro you and right. i was sitting there with all my bizarro U's, and they all auditioned all six of them and then after all six went in the casting director came out and said we're gonna break for lunch and i'll never forget i was so nervous i thought oh can you just do one more it would be great <laughs> nope they break for lunch there's a 30 minute window Everybody leaves, like hundreds of people are leaving this office that I thought only fit five people. It was like a clown car. <laughs> and they all come back with sandwiches and salads from being downstairs because it was at 30 Rock. And this guy sits across from me and he says, are you nervous? And I said, no, I mean, you either get these things or you don't. Mm -hmm. What I'm really nervous about is Americans have the tendency to just completely screw up every great UK show. And they're going to do it with this. I just know it. <laughs> and he said, my name's Greg Daniels. I'm the executive producer. And I genuinely threw up in my mouth. Like, I don't know if he heard it, but right. I threw up in my mouth. And then called my manager and said, That's it. this is what I did, so I should probably just leave. Right. And he said, well, I think he agreed that I should leave. Right. And at that point, he said, no, just go in. And I'll never forget, I walked in the room and they were laughing. They were laughing at me, right. but the producers later said that sort of story was so outlandish that they were laughing with me. And, and you know, anybody who's done comedy can tell you that comedy is an energy game. And whether they were laughing at me or with me, it doesn't matter. The energy was right in the room, and I just had a really, really fun time. And to this day, Greg always says, I'll always remember that about you. You know, honesty is the best policy. Right. Which I don't think is true. So no, anybody right. listening, don't go into every audition and be like, this show this sucks. Suck. Yeah. Is it true that one of the reasons why that same person, Greg Daniels, would have wanted you there for an audition, I don't know if it was at that stage of the process or later, was there was something you had done with NASCAR? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I had done this AT&T broadband commercial for NASCAR. They had like a special package. And... Basically, I went down there to do a couple scenes with a couple of the drivers, one of which was Matt Kenseth, who I remember when I landed, they just said, just so you know, Matt Kenseth has said he will do this commercial as long as he does not speak. He will not speak. And I said, <laughs> oh, okay, great. And they didn't really have a script. It was just a super fan won this opportunity to be with those guys. And I was on the track, and I just started making jokes. I just started improving, And the director just kept shooting. And he basically just said, at this point, now go do whatever you want. Right. And so I started improving with Matt Kenseth and all these other guys. And Matt Kenseth started jumping in with improving lines and having fun. And it was one of the most fun days I've ever had, but I knew that nothing was going to come of it. And instead, when they made the commercial, which I think was like 30 seconds, mm -hmm. they made a special three-minute tape for me, like a three-minute cut of what we did that day. Right. 
and I put it on my reel and and Greg said he saw that and when he found out that I had improv the whole thing he he said that that was one of the big selling points for him wow the other key thing here I guess was that in in deciding whether or not to cast you they had to figure out who who was going to be a combination of Jim and Pam right I mean oh my so, god yeah and I think from what I read we another previous guest of this podcast was Ted Danson and he was saying that with chairs yeah. when it came to Sam and Diane they did a similar thing where it's like we're going to match up a bunch of different people and see what clicks so right. from that day where you kind of put your foot in your mouth but went forward with the audition how dare you Scott? It was... <laughs> <laughs> um, until actually getting the part there would have been that other step right yeah, so what happened was after they met me in New York, they then fly you out to test. And the test is, it's not normal, but we had the actual set built on this stage, which later didn't become our stage, but they built the entire set. So we were auditioning on the set of the show, and it was just so mind-blowing. And again, there's no getting around it. There are moments where the anxiety floods in, and you're just like, how did I get here? This is so crazy. And then you try to lock in. And I remember I definitely... One of my first pairings was with Rain. So what they do is they audition all the New York kids and then they bring in the L.A. kids in like a second phase and start mixing and matching. And one of the first things was with Rain. And I'll, I remember thinking, not only is he phenomenal for this part, but he's genuinely pissing me off. So in an improv, I remember Greg said, John, just get up and ask him to watch your phones while you go to the bathroom. Right. And here I was being Jim to Dwight, and I said, can you just watch my phones? Of course, he says no, and then he starts doing all these animated things like dropping a, a curtain, like you, you can no longer talk to me, and then dropping a steel garage door, you can no longer talk to me, all these things. And by the end, I was just like, I will actually hit you if you don't watch this phone. So I knew he would get the part for sure. And I remember when Jenna walked in, I mean, truly, you know, romantic comedy type of stuff. She walked in with a group of probably 12 people, and as soon as she walked through the door, I said, that's her. That's how I envisioned it. I, I totally see that she's right. So as long as she can, you know, put two words yeah, together, she's right. going to get it. And, of course, people were coming out saying she was great. And then it got three hours, four hours into the audition, and I hadn't gone in with her. And I just knew. I said, if I don't go in the room with that girl, I'm not getting this part. Other that's right. I was, pair, I was being paired with all these other actresses and yeah. things. And so, believe it or not, all the other New York kids had left at that point. I was the only one left. And I wandered onto the set, because all the producers are hidden behind the walls, and I wandered on the set, and it was almost like, you know, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I was like, I think someone forgot to tell me to go home. I'm going to leave now. Right. And a producer blew out of the door and went, no, 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 just wait one sec, one sec. No, 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 we, we didn't forget. Just wait one second. And they walked in, Jenna, and they said, can you just do one more scene before you leave with this girl? And my heart just exploded. I, I was so excited. And we, right from the beginning, had such a blast. And the truth is... We did the audition at the desk, at her desk, and we were walking through the kitchen after that scene. And through the kitchen where the sort of break room is, that's where we were all being held. And so on our way back to the break room, I turned to her in the kitchen. I remember it vividly. And I said, you're going to get this part. And she said, oh, my God, that's what I thought about you. And so when I got the call that I got the part, I did jump on the couch. I mean, I full on <laughs> jumped on the couch and freaked out. And then my first question was, did Jenna Fisher get the part? Because if she got the part, I thought, I, I know this sounds ridiculous, but if, if she got the part, me having done nothing major at that point, I said, this show could have a real shot. And if she didn't, I, I think we're making the wrong show. That's how vital she was to the show. And they told you right away that she had gotten She it. did it, yeah. And then she told me the story, which is very sweet. She said, my first question was, That's did John awesome. get it? Yeah. When you had booked the pilot, but not yet moved forward with anything else, 
you now have a little bit of cash for probably the first time. Yes. How did you spend that? Because I think it suggests <laughs> that directing was on your mind as early as then, right? It was. I wasn't going to direct it at first, but basically what happened was, so I named my production company now, not then, mm -hmm. but now I named my production company Sunday Night. And the reason why I called it Sunday Night was because when I was in New York in those times, like I said, which were thrilling and romantic and crazy and all those things, the one thing you don't get to do as an actor, writer, director, or an aspiring actor, writer, director is act, writer, direct. So you're too busy waiting tables. And I waited tables. I cleaned a yoga studio. I sold real estate pretty legally because I don't think I <laughs> had my license. And it was one of those things you just do whatever you can. So my friends and I met on Sunday night to talk about plays, albums, movies. It was the only time we got to be creative about what we loved. And so when I got this opportunity, I thought I remembered the kid who was at that table, you know, slamming down pint glasses saying, if we if I ever got the opportunity, right. this is what I'd do with it. Right. And so here I was thinking, well, this is what I have to do. I got to put my money where my mouth is literally. So because brief interviews with hideous men, that book that Chris Hayes did the stage reading of changed my life. I felt like I had to pay it forward somehow. So I went to the agent of David Foster Wallace, met with her and said, I want to, you know, adapt the book into a movie. And she said, well, I mean, you haven't really done much right. and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, there's the show, The Office. It's going to be great. <laughs> even though I, was, I wasn't sure it would even right. succeed. Right. And she said, how much money do you have? And I remember I had just gotten the check. Mm -hmm. And so I went to like an email from someone who told me how much the check was. And I read her the full dollar amount, like down to the like <laughs> and seven dollars. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even try to hustle her, which now, you know, I'm a terrible <laughs> negotiator. And she said yes. And it was one of those things where there I was adapting the thing that actually had changed my life. And that would be one of the things that over the course of the run of The Office, you were obviously doing, I guess, during hiatuses and, mm -hmm. and whenever. But one other thing that I guess happens when you get The Office but haven't yet done it, and I think it's kind of maybe a nice story if we can, if we can get into it about Philip Seymour Hoffman, because oh, yeah. it seems like he was somebody that would have been an influence for you. You guys had done, in 2000, you had been, a, I think, an uncredited extra mm -hmm. in a yep. comedy called State in Maine, a, a movie that he was in for David Mamet. Yeah. And then what happened? So I was at Brown, and one of the things, like I said, the small parts that I had gotten when I was a student at Brown was this movie, and we were doing State in Maine. I was a featured extra. I was I was just the assistant to this judge, and the judge had a big part to play in Philip Seymour Hoffman's character because Philip Seymour Hoffman was struggling with the idea of whether or not he confessed his knowledge of this crime. And I think I was on set for three days, two or three days, and with huge gaps in between. And I remember I had loved Phil from... Everything. I mean, I remember Scent of a Woman or, or any of those performances. You could just tell from the very beginning that he had something very special. And, of course, that was sort of the beginning of his stratospheric rise. Right. That was one of the first movies in a, in a bunch that came out the same year where he just became yeah. the greatest of all time, which I think he is. I think he's the greatest. For me, I think I've never seen someone work that magic and make hairpin turns like that. I don't think it's possible to do what he does. So I would watch in awe of him. So on set... I was working with this guy that I admired so much but didn't really know him that well, and, and he was so unbelievably kind. He was joking. On the first day, he joked around with me. He was very sweet to me, asking me what I was up to, and I told him I was at college. And then the second day I came back weeks later, I sort of went up to my quote-unquote pal and was like, hey, Phil, and I'll never forget he had his head against the locker, and it was his big confession scene, obviously the scene in the movie that he was right. most probably preparing for. 
<laughs> and he very sweetly just turned his head and went, hey, John, I can't really talk right now. I'm trying to prepare for this scene. Of course, I was like, prepare? What the hell do you mean? And so anyway, I left and, and did that thing. And then after I got The Office, but again, before it aired, I went and saw... I used to spend whatever money I had going to TKTS and buying whatever tickets mm-hmm. I could to these plays. Mm-hmm. And I bought a ticket to Long Day's Journey into Night, which, in my opinion, is still one of the best performances I've ever seen on stage. Everybody was great, but Tempe, Phil does, yeah, 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 Phil did this scene where, you know, he comes in and he's the drunken failure of a brother and he's talking to his squeaky clean sort of heroic brother that doesn't think he's heroic and basically tells him he loves him. And I burst into tears. And I'll never forget, I was very, very emotional. The play ends, I'm walking out with my friends, and Phil was just coming out from the side door and greeting some fans. And my friend said, you gotta go say hi to him. I went, are you nuts? Like, I, <laughs> I met him for two days, and also if I say three words, I'm gonna burst into tears again. And this is like four or five years after you'd worked yep, together. exactly. And so my friends convinced me to do it. I walked up to him, my voice was cracking, and I said, Phil, we worked, and I was about to give him context, and I said, it's John, we worked, and before I finished, he said, John, oh my God, it's so good to see you. He said, I was wondering if you um, kept on acting, like, this is so great to see you. Are you doing anything? And I said, yeah, I got this thing called The Office. It won't go anywhere, but it was, it's just so good to see you. The fact that he remembered me, and he legitimately said, I'm so happy to hear that you're doing well. It's so great to see you. Thanks for coming up and saying hi. And I had to turn around because I, not only was the performance, but also his kindness going to make me a puddle. So I, I walked away and we saw each other a couple times after that at a charity event for his amazing company that he had, Labyrinth. And I can genuinely say that the passing of any epic hero of mine in this business or otherwise, the few, I think, hit me harder than that. As By the way, I, I think that's a universal thing for anyone who's in this business. There's There are people who are great, and then there are people who are stratospheric and a shining light, and I think he was guiding us all with how good he was. So you go to work as Jim on The Office just to familiarize if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen it. This was the part he played from 2005 to 2013, described by the New York Times as, quote, the most likable, least paranoid character, close (laughs) quote, at Dunder Mifflin Scranton Branch, where he's a sales associate in love with Pam, who we've discussed. First of all, where does the opening footage come from? (laughs) So I got the part, and I was told that I got the part, and the first person who called me was Greg Daniels, who I had embarrassed myself (laughs) in front of. And I called him and said when I was jumping on the couch and I said I'm gonna go to Scranton I was at the time an actor in New York and I said I'm gonna drive to Scranton and I got in a car with my friend Kevin and we drove in his Jeep from New York to Scranton and I remember I had this like HD camcorder and I was way too excitable and I popped out of the sunroof and started (laughs) videotaping the, the Scranton sign as we came in and the town and all these different things to which I think all my friends were like, what are you doing? And I didn't, I didn't know the answer to that. But basically, we, we went to this paper company that was actually there. We walked through. We got a tour from the guy. It was so amazing. And I called Greg and I said, I have all this footage. And obviously, it's high quality. Right. You know, you should take a look at it if you want. And he said, yeah, can you send that to me just for backstory? And I said, sure. And then he came to me one day. We had shot the pilot and we were heading into the first season. And he said, you know, we need an opening sequence can I use your footage as the opening sequence? And I almost passed out. I think they probably offered me like $100. And I said, absolutely. Are you kidding? And and so, yeah, the footage that I shot as an over-eager fan of of getting the show is is in every episode. So the show itself, very quirky, docu-style, shot on film, no live audience or laugh track. These are things that are not always really the case with situational comedies. What makes it so funny is the improv and the timing and all that. 
Do you get the sense that those are things that you did well because of the sketch experience in, in college, or are they just kind of things that you either, as a person, you either have or you don't? That's a great question. I mean, to me, I, I credit it all to my experience in college, not only the, the sketch comedy, but actually just that idea of being, like I said, you know, at the time, I think I was 23. And I think very, for instance, you said that I had done Kinsey. I was locked up and so scared to be on that set because, you know, it's a movie and every take is very well planned out. And Bill Condon's a genius. And I was just so overwhelmed to be there. The office was, let's have fun. This is a circus. Now, one of the things I always say that people don't really believe, but it's true. The writers wrote airtight scripts. I mean, every look to camera, every um, every uh, it's, it's all in the scripts. They were the best writers in the world and they were writing the best material that I've done. It was incredible. But there was still this excitement. It felt like college. It felt like summer camp where, you know, you'd do the scene three or four times the way they wrote it. And then they'd let you sort of have fun with it. And when you had fun, maybe you throw in an extra line or or Rain said something and they would burst through the door and go, that was amazing. Okay, now with that line, let's change the whole thing and try it again. And maybe the whole ending's different and we, we try this. And it was so exciting, so thrilling. And so I think it was more that collegiate style of, you know, you hear about it in the early days of Silent Live or or, you know, National Lampoon, that there was this idea of who cares, let's just do it because who knows if anybody's even watching, you know, and it was so free and so totally pure. And I think that's what what landed in the first, you know, certainly the first season and why we got picked up for a second one is because I think it felt really new. Well, that's really what I wanted to hit on next quickly is that I don't think people realize how close it came to not having a second season, right? Every week. So, yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, there was this incredible guy from NBC. He was the nicest guy. And he would come down every single Friday. I mean, every single Friday. And Jeff. he would say, yeah, it's Jeff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeff Engold. Right. Handsome as hell, Jeff Engold. <laughs> and he would come down and say, oh, man, this is my favorite show. This is the last one we're doing. Okay. And it was genuinely because NBC didn't know if this would work. It was pretty cutting edge at the time there weren't a lot of shows that weren't doing laugh track the single camera was pretty new we were either one of the first or the first at the time i can't remember and so it was edgy you know and they had this english hit that to to bounce it off of and probably were worrying well we can't be that iconic and so he came down and said this is the last one and i said oh that stinks and then by monday it would be like all right come back we'll do one more and we'll just figure (laughs) it out and we were sort of going week to week so much so that I remember asking him, do you mind putting these first six episodes, or I think it was four in the beginning or something, on a DVD? Because I got to show my mom that like I, I actually am doing it. this. Yeah, because oh I genuinely had to prove to my mom that I was doing it and that I wasn't just lying the whole time. And so I still have, my mom still has the DVD with Jeff's handwriting of <laughs> Office 1 through 6. And I think he even said something like, love this or something. Because at that point, they were rolling out on the air, or not yet even. They hadn't rolled out on the air yet. We weren't hitting the air just yet, but they were testing it and all these different things, and it wasn't going great. Again, I don't think they knew what they had. Then when it aired, and again, I'm sure I'm off on the chronology, but for me, when I knew that we were into something, you know, a lot of people say we owe it all to the fans. We genuinely, very specifically, owe everything to our fans because – we were one of the first shows, if not the first show, that you had the opportunity to buy it on iTunes. I was walking through New York, and someone held up this little robot that I later <laughs> found out was an iPod. And he goes, hey, man, look, it's you. And on this two-by-two two screen was my face. And 
not only was it cool that the show was there, but yeah. I was in some other tech world of right. I, I need to go lay down for a month. Like, what is happening? I thought we were in the middle of iRobot or something. <laughs> and that's when I knew if you're paying $1.99 for a show that you can watch for free right. on Thursdays, that's a major tectonic shift. Well, that, that helped. And big. also the fact that Carell had 40-Year-Old Virgin between one and two, right? Suddenly he's somebody. That's exactly right. Yeah, he had done 40-Year-Old Virgin. I know, you know— he had done Anchorman, too, and I remember that was huge, too. He, he had done—I think Anchorman was first. Yeah, it was. And Anchorman, I think, was before season one aired, and then before season two aired, he did 40-Year-Old Virgin. And, yeah, without a doubt, I mean, Steve being that incredibly talented and that incredibly popular was hugely beneficial to us, but I think people were catching on. I remember, for me, the actual episode it was, because I used to go to this mm-hmm. diner in L.A. every morning with my buddy Danny, and we'd have coffee and— talk about stuff and I actually remember it was a Wednesday because back then we were airing on like Tuesdays which we were sort of buried and whatever and I walked in on a Wednesday and this group of people that I would see every morning all of a sudden were turning to each other and saying that's the guy from that show and I could feel it right there and it was sexual harassment it was Mindy's episode that she wrote which again is like one of the funniest most amazing episodes of television and that's when I knew I didn't know it would go on to be successful like it was but I knew that people were watching and I knew that you had to at least pay attention to the right. show, even for a little bit of time. I had no idea that it would be like that. But Well, so to kind of further set up for where we're going to eventually get, of course, with The Quiet Place, you started directing episodes of mm-hmm. The Office. When and how did that begin? Because at that point, I don't think you'd yet done the film version. Maybe you had just done the film version of Brief Interviews. Yeah, it was one of those things. I can't remember. It was really close. It was in between. I think I did an episode first. I actually think I did. And that was Greg asking if I wanted to do one. And I remember thinking, oh, God, no. Like, it's directing your family. That's insane. It's like hosting Thanksgiving dinner for your entire family at the age of 12. You're like, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) But I went around all the other actors and asked if it would be something that they'd be open to. And they were incredibly supportive. So, I mean, how lucky was I to even get that opportunity, but then to get the opportunity where you were so fully supported that any mistake you made would be... You'd be picked up, dusted off, and put right back but in your place. But had directing always been – it doesn't sound like it had not always been like an ambition. Not at all. But here's what happened at The Office for me is not only was it life-changing in every way, it's the opportunity that has given me all the other opportunities. It was, it was something where my life changed completely, but also in a more specific sense, it was the greatest film school I could ever have asked for. So – I'm on set, I'm doing these scenes, I'm hearing these writers pitch new stuff, I'm watching this thing evolve in real time. Like, it wasn't like shows that I've been on since or even had heard about where it was such an organic sort of entity that they were willing to change and make better at every single turn. So all I learned was collaboration is king, best idea wins. Then I'd go to the writer's room and hang out with them a little bit and see how an idea is even made. Like they threw out the craziest idea. You try to keep it in the air. There was nothing, there was no no's. It was always, yeah, that might work. And as long as you could keep it up and then, oh, it won't work because of X, Y, and Z. And they put it in the no pile. And then I'd go down to the editors and we were a real family. So it wasn't like I, I remember hearing Bradley Cooper did the same thing on Alias, but I think Bradley really wanted to be a director. I was just hanging out with my crew And they were doing all these different jobs. And I really fell in love with it. And so directing to me when they asked, I thought, well, that'll be cool. It's like a tightrope walking. I'll I'll do it once and we'll see. And I fell in love with it. It was something that was really exciting to be. It was a different form of storytelling that I had ever experienced. Right. Well, what I hope we can do is 
just very briefly touch on a bunch of these other things that were going on during, I guess, again, the hiatuses of the office that sort of all in some way contribute to who's talking here today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it seems like a movie that maybe doesn't get a lot of other attention but is significant for one reason is License to Wed, 2007. A guy who's directed you on The Office probably as much as anybody. I don't know. Maybe that's not correct. No, it is true. Ken Kwapis did the pilot of The Office and was – he's not only the nicest person you'll ever meet. He's the most supportive, and he asked me to do that role. And this is the first time you're going to be seen as a leading person in a film. Without a doubt. So I thought he was insane for (laughs) allowing me to do that. And then I did the movie with Robin Williams. Now, Robin Williams was an idol of mine. I mean, growing up, that is someone that I look to as like one of those titans that you, I mean, st- like I said, there's Dead Poets Society, yeah. there's Mrs. Doubtfire, there's all these things. Then there's Goodwill Hunting, where being from Boston, we yeah. all have that tattooed to our back. It's like, it's such a, he's such a icon. And when I met him, I was so terrified. He turned out to be not only the funniest person, as you all know, but... Mm-hmm. You realize that his brain for comedy and the speed with which his brain worked for comedy is how it worked in every other facet of his life. So when it came to talking about the news, he was I would tell him about something I read in the newspaper and he'd say, oh, yeah. And three months ago, if you read this thing, you would have known this was coming because X, Y, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. But then one day he said to me, I think you're going to go far in this business. So the only thing I'll tell you is one day you're going to be number one on a call sheet. And, you know, number one means that you're the lead actor. And and he said, just know that that's not a luxury. It's a responsibility and that your job is to carry a set. And so you have to be the most energetic. You have to be the nicest. You have to be the kindest. Take responsibility that that is such an honor and don't ever forget it. And I remember that blew my mind because I watched him do it. And he even said, you know, here we are. We were down in Jamaica shooting the scene. And he said, you know, for instance, today the AC went out, but I'm not going to say I'm hot because if I'm hot, then the entire crew's hot and then we all sort of go downhill. So I'm just going to pretend it's all fine. It was just these amazing, yeah. very human, very beautiful things that he told me. And also the confidence that he yeah. had in me was amazing. And if I hadn't worked on that movie, mm-hmm. jumping ahead, but if I hadn't worked on that movie and gotten to meet such a superstar and realize that I could interface as a real human being, I never would have been able to step on set of Leatherheads, which was which was a year later. It's you and Clooney are playing football players in love with the same person. It's sort of Preston Surge's kind of comedy. And not only is it a huge star you're working with, but it's also somebody who's directing himself. Exactly. And that was something that I think I wasn't aware of sort of by osmosis trying to take in any little hint or trick of the trade that I could take. I just happened to really love watching him work. And I remember after the first week, you know, he again was so incredibly kind, so human. It was, you couldn't really identify him as a movie star because he was just the best drinking buddy. You know, he's just <laughs> a guy that you want to hang out with. And after the first week or so, I was going back and forth shooting The Office. And I know that stressed him out on the schedule, but he did it for me. And even that, it's like, why would he even try to schedule around me the fact that he had that much confidence to not choose another actor that wouldn't have conflicts so then when I finally got down there the first week he took me to dinner and we were talking about things and then he just launched into so tomorrow I'm going to be shooting this scene and this is how I'm going to shoot it and you know keep an eye out for this and that and I remember why is he talking to me like this and he just said listen man you're going to go far in this business and you got to understand the universality of this set that this is a team sport this is a 300 400 person sport and you are so lucky to have each and one, every one of these people on your team. And we just, from then on, pretty much every night went yeah. to dinner 
and he would walk me through not because he knew I wanted to be a director just because listen man you're you have the great rare you know blessed existence to be in this business own it and take it for everything it's worth so that you don't let any moment go by and again like I always came from the place of like, oh, when you get to the top, you're allowed to be a complete jerk. And he was like, no, 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 quite the opposite. And I remember he told me it's so much harder to be an asshole. It's so much easier to be a good person. So just give it all you got. Again, these are the things that you don't expect to learn these philosophical lessons from movie stars. You expect to learn them from, you know, gurus that you meet down an alley or something. (laughs) So it was was really amazing. amazing. The next year was when Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, your first film as a director goes to Sundance that's a few months after another person who you had dealt with very prematurely died David Foster Wallace yeah I think five months something like that earlier took his life so just I guess you've now got a movie under your belt that was good enough to get into Sundance Mm -hmm. then you go on and it seems like probably around that same time was Away We Go, mm-hmm. which is you and Maya Rudolph for Sam Mendes. New York Times called you guys, quote, one of the most credible couples ever to grace a movie screen, close wow. quote. That was Never a, heard that. That was a pretty big compliment I'm there. I'm going to put that on my back right next <laughs> to my Google hunting poster. Perfect. <laughs> and then also that year, you're, you're in a movie where your mother-in-law is Meryl Streep. It's yes. complicated. And so all these things are kind of, two, seems like 2009 would have been a, a fairly important year. And raises your profile to the extent that you are now, how does it come to be that you're being considered for Captain America? Oh, that's a great question. I still have no idea how that all happened. Um, Pre-getting ripped. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it was one of those things where, again, I'm a realist. And so I went in just saying, this is so exciting for me, so I'll take it you know, for all it's worth. I remember when I was waiting tables and doing the whole thing in New York, one of the best bits of advice I got was actually from inside the actor's studio. Ed Harris was on, and he said, you know, again, one of the things you don't get to do as working actors act. So somebody asked him if he liked auditioning, and he said, I do now, but I've also had success and financial freedom. And But when in the beginning, I remember my biggest mistake was trying to sort of understand what would happen if I did get this part. So he said, in the early days, it was, if I get this part, I can pay my rent. If I get this part, I can impress a girl. If I get this part, I'll be famous. And he said, and it killed my sense of self and my sense of creativity. And then one day I realized, because the only thing you don't get to do as an actor is act, I decided I'll just look at them as three-minute plays. So my auditions are three minutes, seven minutes, whatever. They're a play, and I get to do this part. Whether they like it or not, that's what we do. And that stuck with me forever, and that's how I approached Captain America. I was like, I don't know who's the crazy person who even (laughs) thought I could do this, but I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be Captain America for seven minutes or four minutes or whatever it was. And it was so exciting. And I was always wondering if I could do it. You know, you have to come to terms with the parts you're playing and say, can you do it? And if there's someone better, I've always felt, if there's someone better, please, God, let them do it. Because that's a hard place to be trying to sort of manifest something that's not genuinely there. And I was putting on the Captain America. So now I had gotten to the test phase. And I was putting on the Captain America suit, which was really heavy. And I don't mean weight-wise. It was like sort of a big head moment for me of this is so crazy. And as and I remember my shirt was off. There was a mirror. I was kind of feeling like that's not how Captain America <laughs> should look. And I thought, yeah, but if they give me six months, I can right. I can do it. And right then, Chris Hemsworth walked by. And I had known Chris Hemsworth from Star Trek just seeing him. I had right. never met him. Right. And he walked by. And, of course, his costume is like the arms are cut off. Right. And he's just like he was the most ripped, he- still, the most <laughs> ripped human being I've ever seen in my life. And he said something like, 
I'm joking, but it was G'day Mate or something. Yeah. And um, that's what all of us Americans think right, of Aussie, right, right. Uh, Aussies. <laughs> and he said hi to me and waved, and I went, nope. It's we're good. This I, is, like this the is not happening. Yeah, right? yeah. And then I remember my agent called, you know, three weeks later and said, so bad news. They gave it to Chris Evans. And I went, yeah, look at that dude. He is Captain so America. it wasn't too crushing. No, it wasn't. Right. First time I ever crossed paths with you was a little interview tied to Promised Land, which was in 2012. Mm-hmm. And another one sort of, it's interesting, like several of these projects sort of about small town America, in this case, a Capra-esque kind of story about folks that have, who are struggling, who get an offer for money, but they're, the pain in the yeah. long run would be a lot worse because of fracking. First script that Matt Damon was associated with since Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. you and he end up doing this together. How did that even happen? So Emily had done a movie with Matt called Adjustment Bureau. I met Matt on that. Which Emily, was, we should say. Emily, Emily Blunt, Blunt, my wife. You had yes. married in 08. Exactly. Yep. So okay, that would have been. I think they were just. I think we were just engaged. Yeah, we were just engaged when they did this movie, which was a hilarious story because again, Matt was one of those icons that I was, you know, following and yeah, so. Yeah, Boston guy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he's he's the guy. And funny story about that. I remember Emily said to me, "Hey, today we're shooting on Thirty Rock." I hadn't met Matt yet, and she right. said, "We're shooting on the roof of Thirty Rock. You should come by. It's right. like an amazing view." And I said, "Great." She said, "Come by at four p.m." And I went, "Well, that's weird. Right. Like, it's you." You've never given me like a time ultimatum. <laughs> so I rolled by at four or whatever. And the whole time we were walking up the stairs trying to get to the roof. And it was, you know, rolling, rolling, stop, don't make a sound. And then we got to the roof. We blew through the like pigeon door or whatever. And they said, rolling, rolling. And they grabbed me and threw me into the producer's tent, which is all blacked out. And my face slams up against the screen where as I peel my face off the screen, I see Emily and Matt lip locked is an understatement it was just like a lot of open mouth a lot of like you know just just sort of something that you imagine in a teen romance and i went outside my wife's lips were completely red and pink from his whatever like beard hair he had and he went hey man how you doing and i met matt for the first time and this is what matt said matt goes hey man so nice to meet you i was just totally tonguing your girl and i went cool and I watched his brain explode, and he went, right. what was I th- – why would I say right, that? And right. he walked away, and we became really good friends after that. <laughs> we had a fight in the streets, right. and, um, and we, yeah, yourself. we worked it out. No, but I remember Matt asking me, you know, weeks into it, and I don't know why he did this. It's the same yeah. thing as with George. He said, do you write? Mm-hmm. And I said, I do. You know, I'm trying to think of things. And the two ideas that I pitched them were Manchester by the Sea, which was my first right. original idea for a, a movie – that we later gave to Kenny Lonergan to write and direct, which of course was brilliant. And he, I could not have created the world that he created at that lens of his was really important to that movie. And then the second idea I pitched him that we started writing was promised land. And again, we just hit it off and started writing right away. And once I got past the fact that I was writing with Will hunting, (laughs) we had a lot of fun. And I, I think weirdly all the movies I've done as a writer or a director are for people. And so that movie was really for my dad. Yeah. My dad comes from Pittsburgh and big steel mill town that was sort of holed out. And that idea of my dad told me about a world where his dad who worked three jobs once gave his neighbor, I don't know what the dollar amount was, but it, it would have been way more than you're supposed to give right. a friend. It was, you know, whether it was 7,000 or 12,000 mm. at that time, it might as well have been a million. Yeah. And I said to my dad, why did he do that as a kid? And my dad said, well, because he needed it. He just needed help. And I thought we had changed as a community and as a country that 
that these communities weren't supporting each other. We were being divided so individualistically that it was about, well, if I can do better than my neighbor, I'm going to do it. And and that shift is why I, I wrote the... And Matt was going to direct, but to bring back Goodwill Hunting, he was going to direct it, but mm-hmm. then it ends up being... That was the only time I think I had a fight with Matt. Yeah, <laughs> He called me just before Christmas, right. I, the Friday before this whole town goes on break, and he said... Right. Hey, man, I just got too much going on next year. I can't direct it, but don't worry. It's going to be great. And I had a complete breakdown <laughs> and thought, where are you now? Right. Like, what's your actual right. address? I'm going to come with <laughs> a crowbar and I'm going to, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to knock your knees out. Right. And then luckily within three minutes of conversation, he said, I, I sent the script to Gus, Gus Van Sant. We'll see what he says. And I went, oh, yeah, great. Right. Nice try to throw out your friend Gus Van Sant, but yeah, within three minutes, Gus Van Sant's going to respond, and sure enough, Gus was on a flight, read the script on a flight, and by the time he landed, actually five hours later, that same day, Matt was like, Gus wants to do it, and I was like, who are you? What is going on right now? So yeah, we we got really lucky there. So at that point, 2013, you're coming off of the office, coming out of there, and I wonder, you know, what the outlook was. Do you think, first of all, that as someone who had become famous on TV as opposed to in films, mm-hmm. did that change the way audiences, their their sense of a relationship with you? I don't know. It, it was one of those things where I could never look at it like that. And people have asked me again before, are all the things you've done since The Office running away from Jim? Do you not want to be defined as Jim? And the truth is, absolutely not. It's the exact opposite. I felt like at the end of my career, I'm pretty sure still that the thing I'll be most known for is Jim. And that's an honor. That is the greatest but again, going back to that kid at a bar who slammed down pint glasses saying, if we ever get this opportunity, well, there's never been a bigger opportunity, or I had never heard of a bigger opportunity. So I thought as a storyteller, as the kid who, you know, painted sets and lit, you know, sets and all those things, like, what do I want to do? And what I think everybody wants to do is challenge themselves. So I tried to remember, instead of sitting back and saying, I've reached this point, I'm just going to sit back and feel comfortable, I thought, no, go back to why you got in this game in the first place, which is sheer love of the game. And of course, I had been so incredibly lucky and so incredibly fortunate. But that was the reason why I wanted to push myself because I couldn't otherwise. And so I started doing some some really different stuff. And from off Broadway in 2016 with Dry Theater and then directing yourself for the Hollers was great coming back to Margot Martin. Yeah, exactly. 2016. But there was not a conscious thought. I mean, we had on this podcast another person, I'm not promise I'm not trying to just drop names here, but I mean, like Tom Hanks was saying, coming out of a certain period early in his career, which had included TV, Mm -hmm. he literally said, I'm sick of playing pussies. Right. I remember that. And I'm not saying you're character was a pussy but he was a nice guy and Thank that you, can be limited have to fight right. um, no listen there's there's definitely an element to that I remember the show was ending and about a week before I had met a studio executive and they said man just wait till this show ends wait till you see how much opportunity comes your way and I thought oh that's interesting and the truth of the matter is I'd say for a year and a half I mean the phone didn't ring right and that was weird that was jarring yeah. but I also thought you can't complain about anything. This is just something that you need to do. So I tried to get in on auditions. I wouldn't even be seen for auditions. You know, my agent was getting, you know, emails from people that I knew, people I had met at, you know, all these functions who were very sweet. They were like, you know, he's only going to be Jim. He'll only be known as Jim from the office. So, yeah, that is frustrating to be put in a box, but not because of the show, not because of Jim, because I loved it. It was it was more about like just old school high school basketball stuff of like, 
you can't tell me I'm not going to make right. it to the to the big game. Let's at least try. So was the hollers of, was first. And I was going to say that's because partly there, as your director, you can take control of your own. Well, that was the thing. Fate. I didn't I didn't see myself as a director that could do that yet. And so I just tried it, and I and I took control with the hollers. And then after that, acting wise was 13 hours. So it was the hollers, and then 13 hours came right on the heels of that, which. I'm from a big military family, and so it was one of those things where I've always wanted to do a military movie. I come from a family of, I think I have 11 aunts and uncles and cousins who have served and are currently serving, and that's been something that has been in my family and my day-to-day for my life. And so to get that opportunity to play that was huge. This is about Benghazi um, for Exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the, the night in Benghazi. And, and uh, physically transformed. And physically transformed, yeah. yeah. And then... Just to, again, bring it right up to the present, Detroit 2017, you have mm-hmm. a great third act stuff there. Jack Ryan, which you got your nomination for today, is I think that preceded A Quiet Place, right? It did, yeah. So what happened was 13 Hours came out, I think at that time, unbeknownst to me, I was doing Dry Powder. I, I went from 13 Hours and did Dry Powder, this play on at the Public Theater, which was amazing with the incredible Tommy Kale, who directed a tiny show called Hamilton. <laughs> and they were looking to reboot Jack Ryan, but they hadn't told anybody. And so because 13 Hours was a Paramount movie and Jack Ryan's a Paramount show, they saw 13 Hours and said, I think maybe John would do it. And so they they reached out to me and, and, and we started moving on that. And then Quiet Place came because just before season one started on Jack Ryan, the producers are, you know, Andrew Form and Brad Fuller were calling me and we were starting to get into prep on Jack Ryan and out of nowhere they just said you know we have this script it's a spec script would you ever consider it it's a genre movie would you consider it as an actor and I hesitated for half a second went absolutely not I can't watch genre let alone make a genre movie right. so good luck have a great time they said no no no, it's a really good idea it's about a family that can't talk and you have to figure out why and I, I remember saying to them damn it that is a really good idea so yes yeah, send it and I had no intention of taking it any further. And I read this spec script. We had actually had our second daughter three weeks before they sent that script. So I was holding a three-week-old human. (laughs) And for any new parent out there, you know that, like, it is like a horror movie. You're not, you're, you haven't even had the time to consider how to make this person happy. You're just trying to keep this person alive. And so I was reading a script while holding a three-week-old baby about a family that would do anything for their kids. And it was much more of a horror movie, and there were there were things that I wanted to change. And then I realized, wait a minute, me holding this kid, this is it. If I could write and direct, rewrite this script to make it the greatest metaphor for parenthood. So I rewrote the whole script to be about family, not about a horror movie or anything like that, but to be about a family and actually get to say all the things I wanted to say to my kids. So I know it sounds absolutely insane when you look at the poster, But the reason why I decided to do this movie is because it's a love letter to my kids. I thought I could actually write the experience of parenthood for me. And And the um, directing aspect, though, is it was at your wife's urging. I ran downstairs. Even before she was going to be involved. before, yeah. So I read this spec script. I I ran down to her and I said, I think I can rewrite this thing and, and act in it. And I pitched her all my ideas, and she said, no, you're not going to rewrite and act in it. And I said, I'm not. And she said, no, you're going to direct it too. And I said, why? It's a studio movie. It's a big budget. I've never done visual effects. She said, I've never seen you so lit up like this. You have to do it. And so I called the producers back 24 hours later. And that's that's a producer's dream is to, <laughs> is to hear an actor go, yeah, yeah, I'll be in the movie if you let me rewrite and direct it. And the funny thing is I remember it was on Skype, so they couldn't hit mute. 
and say who the f does this person right, think right, they right. are it's it was really hilarious but i gotta say i pitched them all my ideas and it, it's never happened in my career and and i'm sure it'll be a long time since i saw this movie from frame one to frame end truly right in the 20 minutes after I read the spec script and I knew what I wanted to to change and add and completely restructure and I pitched that exactly to them and they hung up the phone and called Paramount and said we're done we have our guy we want to make this That's movie amazing. so and the only thing that I think really changed from there in terms of structure would would have been the ending was there something about once maybe I don't know if it was because Emily joined mm. but that who's gonna kind of shoot somebody at the end here oh yeah that was a chance the scripts are very different but the idea that the spec script had these guys had written an idea that was perfect it's the best idea i think i've ever heard and their idea of what this world was and the rules and things like that but i had restructured a bunch of different things first off the opening of the movie so the opening and the ending yeah were, were very different but this idea that you're talking about of what happens at the end of the movie, one of the best things you get to have as an actor that gets the great opportunity to direct is you learn from all these other directors you've worked with. And one of the things I learned first and foremost is best idea wins. That you can't, as much as you over-prepare and you can prepare something to within an inch of its life, you always have to leave the door open to an organic moment happening. And many of those happened on this movie, but most importantly, one of the things was the ending where the producer said, I think Emily should shoot the creature at the end of the movie and I said why and he said I just think that's what the audience wants and I said that is ridiculous and thank you anyway and I went home right. and weirdly on my drive in the next morning I was listening to a podcast where it was like an old podcast from 1979 or something and this journalist was asking Steven Spielberg I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. but it was why should we pay attention to this generation of directors when we have our true foes and all these amazing artists why 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 should we pay attention to you and your group of directors and he said because we can make the art films that will leave a stink on you i remember that term was so cool we can make the same type of art film that leave a stink on you but you can have fun at the same time and that was that idea of commercial movies also being good and so i thought wow if i can make her shooting the creature actually not about a cool moment for the audience but a moment of family that the little girl thinks she has the answer but doesn't have the answer without her mom and they have to team up and that idea of even after she shoots the creature, you're not sure that that's the end of the movie. Those sort of things is what I was really excited about to push the limits. Well, I think the the boldest thing that when people step back and look at this in a few years is going to be that you had the confidence that audiences in 2018 would be responsive to a movie that is not a silent movie, but it's basically a dialogue-free movie. And yeah. that you had the faith that they would go for that. And so I guess I just wonder where that came from and if in the making of it, it was also the the same thing where, you know, they talk about silent movies in the, in the silent era. They, sometimes you have somebody on set to play piano to create a mood or they're having different things. Yeah. What was it actually like for you guys sound Well, it was one of those things where we knew it was a high wire act. We knew that it would be, you know, meaning if you get to the end of a high wire act, you succeed. And if you don't, it's the worst possible outcome. Yeah. And... I thought people would go with the idea, but I didn't know that it would take on this entire culture of itself of people not being able to eat concessions and stuff like that, which was so thrilling. But for me, it was more about making it all organic and not just to be cool, you know, like I was saying before. So again, you leave the door open to these organic moments coming in. And from the moment we shot the family walking over the bridge and I heard the crew members saying, you know, oh my God, the forest sounds so amazing. You re I realized that people hadn't stopped to listen to things like The Forest, to the scene where first time Emily was doing a scene with the kids and these kids without 
dialogue were emoting some of the most perfect performances I had ever seen. I teared up behind the monitors and turned to my producer. It was like day six. And I said, oh, my God, this might work. And he said, hey, man, it's day six. It's way too late to be saying <laughs> this might work. And then the biggest one and, and the, the most exciting thing, our sound team is the best. Yeah. I mean, Ethan and Eric are the most talented. I don't call them sound designers. I call them sound magicians. Yeah. And they understood not how cool this could be, but how powerful it could be, how much you could move someone. And one of my favorite stories is Millie's Envelope. So the, the unbelievable actress, Millicent Simmons, mm -hmm. who plays my daughter in the movie, she is uh, actually deaf, which was non-negotiable to me to cast a deaf actress. But I was watching her communicate with her mom, and her mom was speaking while she was signing to her daughter. And I said, oh, quick question, does she hear you at all? Because why are you speaking? She said, no, I just, that's, I speak. And she can't hear everything, anything. She's always described as a low-level rumble. You know, if you crash something behind her, she might hear it a little bit, but she'd feel it first. And I thought that was really interesting. So I went back to the sound designers and I said, let's give it a shot. Let's try to actually accomplish what she really hears in real life. And so we did. It took a long time. And I remember at South by Southwest, I, I pulled Millie's mom aside and I said, listen, I took this huge shot. If it doesn't work out for you, it's fine. If you have any notes, it's fine. We have a couple more days in the mix. But this is what I did. And this is the beauty of taking big swings like this is she came up to me after. It was an amazing night for many reasons. But she came up to me, and one of my most special moments will always be in this process. She came up to me sobbing, not crying, sobbing. And she said to me, the only thing I've ever wished and prayed for in my life is to be able to understand my daughter's experience. And you just delivered that to me for the first time. And, I mean, I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. It's one of those things that every time you think about it, you realize why this movie is so special to us. Right. And we feel so incredibly honored and overwhelmed that people think it's special too. First thing that comes to your mind, who played the creatures? I did. <laughs> it was because you got in the mocap suit. I got suit. in the mocap suit, and that's the best thing when you do a test audience is to see Jim from The Office right. with Vans on and a beard and a way too tight mocap suit. There was talk earlier this year about an Oscar for Best Popular Film as if there needed to be a carve-out for popular films. Mm -hmm. I didn't think you were that into it. It didn't seem that way. How should the Academy handle popular movies like this? Listen, they're going to handle it however they want to handle it. For me, I just, you know, I'm not a love-it-or-hate-it kind of guy. My point was it's a slippery slope. I think the moment you start saying this is the best movie that was popular, then you're getting into this is the best movie that has an all-female cast. Right, right, right. And when you start getting into that, then what are we doing? You know, one of the posts that I saw was, I think it was a guy from CNN, which was so cool, was the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time. They were all nominated, won, and or in the case of Snow White, got an honorary Oscar. Right. And it's sort of like, that's why we're all in this business, is to make great movies. And so I, I, I love the idea of being, I, I should say, I feel comfortable being put in the, the bigger pot of all movies Just, rather than yeah, a specific cool. movie. When someone initially brought up the sequel, you weren't, I think initially jumping at it, but you're yeah. going to do it. Why? Yeah, well, I mean, it was one of those things where this movie wasn't supposed to be a movie with a sequel, but I also am a realist, like I said, and totally understood why the studio would want to make another one because of the success of the first one. And I just said, good luck. And, and it was one of those things I said, go find someone else. And they said, great. Well, while we're meeting other people, do you have an idea <laughs> that we could do? And I said, I have this tiny idea. It'll never right. work. And of course, my producer was just saying, yeah, well, why do we meet all these other people? Keep thinking about it. And totally Jedi mind tricked me into writing the the second one, so I'm doing that now. Would you do TV again? Would you do The Office again? I mean, obviously Jack Ryan is gone, but like sort mm -hmm. of that also I think was going to be a closed-ended thing that's now become a, it's been, it's going to be a multi-season. Yeah, no, they always wanted it to be multi-seasons, but it, it's, you know, again, one of those, it feels like a miniseries. It's a different situation each year. 
I would definitely do TV again. To me, I not only grew up and my whole start is on TV, but especially nowadays, as everyone can tell, film and TV have blurred. There is nothing. It's just content. It's about what what's fun to watch. I mean, I will watch a Chris Nolan film and then go watch an episode of Peaky Blinders. And to me, they're they're both so exciting. So, so yeah, absolutely. And as far as The Office, it's one of those things where you're asking if I would go back and be a part of that family again and that experience. The answer is an overwhelming yes, because to me, it's not just about doing a show. It's about getting together with a group of people that, that I, I, I mean, have changed my life. Last one is... I'm going to put you on the spot here because the Academy right now is trying to sort itself out. They've had a little bit of a host hiccup. Mm-hmm. I, we've been chatting on social and with a lot of reporters and everybody, what, what would be their best solution here? The best idea that I've heard would be you with or without, but with it would be cool if you did it with Emily. If they came to you and called and said today, John Krasinski, would you, with or without Emily Blunt, if she decides to do it, would you host the Oscars in, in February? What would you say? Absolutely not. That is not, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> but for no other reason other than I'm not good at it. I'd be so nervous I'd have a nosebleed backstage and never appear. So it would be one of those things where I, I'm looking forward to seeing who they choose as well. It's a, right. that's a tough gig. I mean, I think, listen, as much as we're in this business and we do a lot of different things when cameras are rolling, it's a whole different thing when you have a live audience. It's a whole nother animal and a whole nother skill set that I, I don't think I have. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Scott, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.